Well, as is our custom, believing that God's Word, the Bible, is His infallible, infallible, inspired, inerrant communication to us, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 will continue in our study of this chapter, and in the third part of our study of the particular verses that we're looking at, verses 4 through 6, when 7 times 1 equals 1. And the reason for that title is there are seven attributions or seven descriptions in this little paragraph we're looking at that all begin with the description one, 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 one. And they all equal our unity as a one body, one group of believers in Christ. Let me just read the first six verses to put the context in mind for you. Ephesians chapter four, verse one. Paul says, therefore I... The prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you remember where you were on March 3rd, 1991? I do. I remember exactly where I was. After a high-speed chase, a man named Rodney King was beaten by Los Angeles Police Department officers during his arrest. He had been driving while intoxicated off the 210 freeway and led police on a high-speed chase off the freeway onto surface streets and then resisted arrest. An uninvolved man named George Holliday filmed the incident from his nearby balcony and sent the footage to a local news station. I believe it was uh, KTLA. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. The footage showed an unarmed king on the ground being beaten after initially evading and resisting arrest. The incident was covered by news media around the world, caused a public furor. And to shorten a very long story, the arresting officers were tried and acquitted. After this acquittal, in response, Los Angeles erupted into riots for several days extending into a week. In a very noble attempt, and I do mean a very noble attempt to restore order, Rodney King himself held a press conference and uttered some now famous words, quote, I just want to say, can we all get along? Can we, can we get along? As an interesting footnote, The man who filmed the beating of Rodney King lived upstairs in the apartments where I was living 
at the time. This was right across the street from us. It was, we heard um, that night sirens and helicopters hovering above our apartment building. But to be honest, living in L.A., that wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> it wasn't until we heard the address the next day as this video footage was being passed around that uh, we put two and two together and said, that's what we heard last night. I appreciate the words of Mr. King who said, can't we all just get along? However, the riots didn't stop with his plea. We all learned a lot of things during those riots, especially living in Los Angeles. But one thing was certain. It takes more than just a request and a desire to get along, to truly get along. I wish it had been just as easy as for him to say, can't we all get along? And everybody said, oh, that's right. And let's, let's stop riding and everything's okay. But it didn't happen like that. It takes more than just requesting and desiring to get along, to truly get along. And that is especially true about Christian unity. That's the focus of Paul in this paragraph that we've looked at. Unity among believers in Jesus Christ, unity among the church worldwide and unity among the church locally that we sit in right here this morning is one of the most important doctrines to understand and one of the most important doctrines to apply in the entire Bible. One of the most precious realities to Jesus Christ is the unity that's supposed to exist among believers and followers of him. But true Christian unity is not just a condition of getting along with each other. It's actually a situation where believers joyfully, assertively, uncompromisingly, deliberately, willingly, joyfully cooperate in worshiping and serving Jesus Christ together. That's Christian unity. What we read in Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6, is a, is, a, is a creed of sorts. One body, one spirit, one faith, one father, one, 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 one. It's a series of seven rapid-fire descriptions of Christian orthodoxy or Christian belief, Christian doctrine that define really what the church is, define what a Christian is. Let me say it as strongly as I think Paul would. You cannot deny any of those statements about the one faith and one Lord and one baptism, one calling, one hope, and still be a Christian. These define our essential beliefs. I said this last time, let me repeat it again. The most important things about our church, think about this, the most important things about Mission Road Bible Church are not the things that make us distinct from other Bible-believing true churches. What make us distinct from other bodies? What's most important about our church are the things that we have in common with all other true believers. We can say it this way, common allegiance to great things overrides uncommon differences in lesser things. Common allegiances to greater things override uncommon differences 
in lesser things. Paul's been teaching this lesson to the Ephesians in the first three chapters, despite their massive differences with each other. You have Jews and Gentiles who came to Christ and were sitting in the same pews in the same church. And they hated each other culturally. Different clothes, different styles, different diets, different holidays, different languages. And yet they came together in Christ, in the church, in a unity that the Spirit of God himself created between them. That their common allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ caused their differences to be set aside in the shadows. But that was a unity, as we studied in verse 3, that has to be preserved because if it's not preserved, you'll begin noticing not your allegiance to the Lord, but your differences with your brother and sister, and you'll start majoring and focusing on those differences rather than the common allegiance to Christ. Paul understands that. That's why he calls us back to this series of statements about one common distinctive after another in our faith. Paul is not talking about a kind of unity that's an emotional kind of sappy kumbaya, let's hold hands and get around the campfire unity and feel good. It's not unity at any price. It's a unity based on the fundamental biblical truths of the gospel. We are unified because of the commonality we share in doctrinal convictions with others. Now, we began in verses 1 to 3 with Paul addressing the heart dispositions toward unity in the church. We have to have these, humility and gentleness and patience and love. And then he turns toward the corporate unity in verses 4 to 6. What makes us all unified together? And it's by looking at the same set of doctrinal principles. There's also a substructure that works throughout this passage. You'll see that all three members of the Trinity show up. Typically, in reverse order, then we talk about them. We usually talk about Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here we see the Spirit and then the Son and then the Father. It climaxes with the Father that we'll see here in verse 6. This is nothing new. David said in Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is good for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. Let's look at these seven doctrinal commitments then together. Seven doctrinal commitments that preserve unity in the church. (coughs) We looked at five of these already, and we'll look at the last two today. Seven doctrinal commitments that preserve unity in the church. This is the first five. We'll just be review. We'll go through those quickly. Number one, common commitment to one body. Now, when Paul talks about one, 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 it's not necessarily one as opposed to many, as much as it is one in terms of our common commitment to the same. So you could say one, or you could say to the same body. <coughs> Excuse me. There is one body. We noticed last week that the word there is, the two words there is, not in the original uh, uh, Greek. He just comes off of saying we're to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. One body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. One, 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 followed by the other. 
one body. Paul's favorite use, description of the church, we're a body. We're like a human body where Christ is the head and we are body parts, hands and feet, nose and ears and eyes. And we work together. The unity of the body is described explicitly in 1 Corinthians 12. And Paul goes to great detail to say we are many members, many parts, but one body. They have to work together. I was watching this last week, a uh, uh, report on ESPN about a a pole vaulter who's uh, likely on his way to break the world record for pole vaulting. And it was showing him in his approach to the pole vault in slow motion. All the way from his way back, he grabbed the pole, he leaned back, and then he would start his sprint, every single step calculated to the nth degree, the nth inch. And then when he hits the pole vault pit and the, the pole bends, and the way his body comes together in all of its part to catapult him over that 19-foot bar is is incredible. If any one part of his body was not in sync with the other, it wouldn't happen. And I was thinking about, I was been studying this all week, thinking that's what Christ's body should be, a well-tuned athlete where we work together in concert with one another. Paul says we're a part of one body, even those Jews and Gentiles and people who didn't like each other. We're still supposed to work together. Secondly, <clears throat> again, just reviewing, we have common commitment to one spirit. This is the Holy Spirit himself, verse 4, and one spirit. The nearest antecedent to that, or the nearest reference to that, is back in verse 3, being diligent or making every effort to preserve the unity of the spirit, the unity the spirit has generated in the bond of peace, being at peace with each other because he has created unity among us because we, say, we believe the same gospel about the same Lord. Common commitment to the same Spirit of God. Third, we looked at common commitment to one hope. Just as at the end of verse 4, you also were called into one hope of your calling. We were called to hope. Now, this hope is not wishful thinking. This hope is confidence in what's happening. This is talking about, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 18, I pray that your eyes the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, you'll know the, what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory and the inheritance of his saints. So this is our inheritance. This is the future. This is heaven. We're called into one hope because we, you can look around, we are on our way to heaven with each other. If we're going to spend eternity with each other, we might want to get to know each other now. We are on our way to the same destination We have one hope, a single end. We all end the same way as believers. One hope. If we're headed the same direction, going to end up in the same place, we should travel together. In other words, having one hope. Which leads, obviously, hope in the Lord to one Lord. Common commitment to one Lord in verse 5. This sevenfold doctrinal confession is theologically structured around the three persons of the Trinity. We saw the Spirit. Now we see the Lord, who is Jesus. It's a reference to Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son in verse 5. One Lord, that means He's the Master. That means Jews and Gentiles both obey the same Master, the same Teacher, the same Discipler, the same Lord, the same Savior. 
grafted in the same body of Christ. They are under the same head who is Jesus himself. 1 Corinthians 12, 5, there are a variety of ministries and the same Lord. So I know it says one Lord, but you can substitute the synonym same. We have the same Lord as every other believer who's ever embraced the gospel, which obviously leads to, in our final point of review, common commitment to one faith, one gospel, what we believe, what you have to believe to be saved, that Jesus came, God in the flesh. It's the Christmas story that Jesus taught that Jesus had authority like none other, that Jesus was the God-man who substituted for us in his death in our place to receive the wrath of God on the cross so that he could give us his righteousness by imputation, by granting that. And he rose from the dead to prove that it was all true. That's what we believe. We have one faith, only one gospel that brings us together. Colossians 2 verse 6 says, as you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. What you believe. <clears throat> and we saw it from Ephesians chapter 2, verse, nine, verse 8. By grace, you have been saved through what? Faith, through believing. We all enter heaven, we all enter Christianity through a very narrow door. It's not by our works, it's not by what we do, it's not by our efforts. No one can get to heaven by being good enough or trying hard enough. You don't become a Christian because you're a good person. You don't become a Christian because your parents were Christian. You're not born into the faith, you express faith. And that's how every person comes to faith. In Christ, you believe the good news of the gospel. Well, that leaves us the last two, and we'll turn our attention there. Common commitment number five, number six to one baptism. Common commitment to one baptism. Verse five at the end there, one baptism. It's the sixth doctrinal commitment that's caused some to be very confused about what Paul meant. Baptism, what is he referencing? Now, the, the, is he talking about mode? Is he talking about timing? We, we get really tripped up on mode and timing. Mode, is it sprinkling or is it immersion? And there are theological debates about that. And then timing, is it pedo or credo? Pedo Baptist from the word, Greek word for child, infant baptism or credo based on belief after you believe. And we get so tripped up on that debate, and we should. I believe that the biblical evidence is very clear that the Bible says that the timing is after you believe as a believer and that the mode is immersion by going all the way under the water. That's what the word baptize, baptizo means, to submerge, to immerse. It was used of dyeing cloths. This wasn't tie-dye where you just sprinkle them. You dip the cloth all the way under to dye it. But that's not the debate that Paul is addressing here. It's a worthy debate to have, but it's not what's in mind here. The New Testament actually speaks of two kinds of baptism, two types of baptism. There's a physical baptism. That's water baptism. We do that in the tank right back there uh, every now and again where we baptize people in the water. It's a physical act. It's a physical point of of uh, action and obedience. But there's also spiritual baptism, being baptized in the Spirit, baptism by the Spirit. Let's break those down for a second and wonder what Paul is talking about here when he says one baptism. 
Water baptism, why do, why do we baptize people in water? Well, it might surprise some to know that there was a lot of baptism before Jesus was baptism, before Christ, baptizing, before there was Christian baptism. His cousin was doing so, and his nickname was John the Baptist. The Essenes were baptizing down in Qumran. They were baptizing in northern Galilee. Baptism, they were, they were baptizing when you went into the synagogue. You would dip yourself in a, in a pool. In a, it's called a mikvah. You would ceremonially cleanse yourself. You would dip down and walk into the synagogue. Lots of baptism before Christian baptism. That's important because Paul is talking about, well, there's one baptism. Why do we baptize today? It was very simple because Jesus said to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples, generate Christians because of faith, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, baptizing them. So make disciples, and baptize them. So the reason that the main reason we are baptized today is Jesus said to be. Paul commanded the same thing in the first Christian sermon ever preached. I have to confess that sometimes you know every preacher has a fantasy or seven or twelve or a hundred. One of mine is I would love to know what it was like for Peter to preach and then have this response. So this is the first Christian sermon ever preached. And so he stands on the, probably the southern steps of the Temple Mount. He's preaching. And at the end of the sermon, now when the people heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? I've never preached and had somebody come up and say, Rick, what should I do in response to what you just said? Somebody's going to do that today. and I'll appreciate that. Okay. This was piercing to their heart. So what does Peter say? Listen what he says. Repent, turn from your sins, follow Christ, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's critical about water baptism that he's commanding there is it's in the name of someone. Remember how I said baptism? There was a lot of baptism, baptizing going on. Baptism, I don't want to make it trite, but it was almost, it was the way you joined a movement or you identified with a movement. You joined a club. You would be baptized in a certain manner to follow a certain way or a certain teacher. John came with a baptism of repentance. Jesus was baptized by John, not because he needed anything to repent of, but because he wanted to, this is important, identify with this way of repenters, those who are turning back to God. So water baptism is an outward indication of an inward change and a commitment. Baptism has never, water baptism has never saved anyone. It cannot save anyone. No one is saved by being baptized but it's a symbol of the cleansing of our hearts, washing away of our sin by the blood of Jesus. It's a way to publicly tell everybody that you now are a follower of Christ. It's identification. 
There's another kind of baptism beyond water baptism. It's called spirit baptism. Baptism of the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit. It's being baptized into Christ as Romans 6 talks about. Paul describes this very specifically in 1 Corinthians 12, 3 when he says this, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. And what that means is the, and when we believe the gospel, the Holy Spirit pulls us, baptizes us in the spirit in that he identifies us as truly children of God, gives us the permanent abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, and we're now partakers of the divine gift of salvation by belief. John the Baptist promised this spiritual baptism even when he was doing water baptism. In Luke 3.13, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but, different baptism, one is coming who is mightier than I. I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's a spiritual baptism. So what is this? Is Paul talking about one baptism as spirit baptism or water baptism? I, I just <clears throat> couldn't resist. I thought it might be interesting for you and a little fun for you to see what it's like to study for a sermon on an issue where people disagree. So I just jotted down some notes. I, I probably looked at, I don't know, 18, 22 commentaries on this issue this week. And uh, not everyone agrees. So let me just quote from some commentaries and just, just listen. <clears throat> there is but one baptism among believers, and it is spirit baptism by which all are placed in the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Another author says, probably this refers to the practice of water baptism and not solely to the experience of the spirit baptism. Another writer the one baptism is obviously the Christian initiatory rite of water baptism and not spirit baptism. Another writer, the one baptism most likely refers to the inner reality of being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Another one, the apostle is not making distinctions as to whether it's water baptism or spirit baptism that's in view. Another one, one baptism may refer to one baptism, the phrase, may refer to water baptism, the outward symbol uh, of the inward reality, or it may refer to a believer's identification with Christ and his death. Well, that doesn't help anybody. We know that. So to study for a sermon is like to sit at a desk with all these voices saying, I, 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 I'm right, I'm right, he's wrong, I'm right, I'm right. It's just, and sometimes they get really loud in my office. So what is Paul talking about here? Water baptism or spirit baptism? Well, in a sense, I think he's talking about both. There's a critical assumption that must be noted to understand how Paul thinks about baptism. The reference to baptism is used as a designation for those who are believers in Christ. Tom Schreiner is very helpful here. He says this, quote, 
since unbaptized Christians were virtually non-existent, to refer to those who were baptized is another way of describing those who are Christians, those who have put their faith in Christ, end quote. He's not saying that you're baptized to be a Christian, but there's no concept of an unbaptized Christian. So what is this talking about? I don't think this is specifically referencing water baptism, though it's in mine, and specifically referencing spirit baptism, though it's in mine. I think it's both in that it's talking about, drum roll, identity. And the reason that I think that that's obvious is that when, spirit, when baptism is spoken of by Jesus and by Peter, it's always in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, you're baptized saying, I am loyal to the gospel. I am loyal to him. I'm loyal to Christ. So I think it's, it's both because there was no idea that you wouldn't be baptized with water as a believer. And obviously, if you're a believer, you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit because you have the permanent abiding presence of the Spirit. I don't have the time to go into this. That's not a subsequent work of the Spirit after salvation that happens at salvation. So the one baptism refers to our singular identity. Now, this is important. Go back to the original context. Jews had their own baptisms. Gentiles had their own ceremonial cleansings. And he said, no, no, no. You now have one, one baptism. You're united by identity in Christ, by being baptized in him, by him, for him, about him. It brings up a great question about our identity. But so much of... So much of what we pursue is trying to create identity. I think it's fair to say most people spend most of their life trying to create a perceived identity in other people's mind about themselves. That's why I fundamentally disagree with all of these surveys and tests that people take, whether it's a spiritual gifts survey or a a survey that's supposed to tell you what you're like, because no one's truthful on those. You answer them according to what you want to be like. We also live in terms of and act in terms of how we want to be perceived. That's natural and normal, but what is your identity? What do you want your identity to be? Baptism says we're identified with Christ. He is our main thing. Do you see your identity? Do you find your identity in your appearance, your clothes, your finances, your talents? Do you find it alone in your comforts, your hobbies? Do you find it in being accepted? Paul says we have one baptism, one identity. We are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus for our forgiveness of sins. He is our identity. And I can't move on from this without just asking you, (laughs) is there anyone here who has believed the good news of the gospel. You're a Christian. You have committed your life to Christ, but you have postponed or yet to be baptized. Can I just softly, encouragingly, and pastorally remind you that you are, you're in a state of disobedience if you haven't been, and you need to be baptized. It is... 
It's the easiest part of your holiness and sanctification you will ever do in your life. I know you say, how, how can you even say that? Because you, you baptize, it takes a few seconds and you're done. Don't you wish dealing with envy was that easy? Or lust? Or materialism? Or jealousy? Or pride? This is one and done. So let me just encourage you, if you have not been baptized as a believer, we'll have a baptism class here soon. Please come, learn what that means, what that's about, and obey what Jesus said. If you're a disciple, you should be baptized in Christ's name. So it's our identity, our identity. And then last, it's really the climax, a common commitment to one God and Father of all. Seven doctrinal commitments that preserve unity in the church, a common commitment to one body, common commitment to one spirit, common commitment to one hope, common commitment to one Lord, common commitment to one faith, common commitment to one identity or baptism, and lastly, a common commitment to one God and Father of all. Verse 6, one God and Father. Stop right there. One God would have been enough. This is why we know he's referencing the Trinity. One God would have covered it. But he's talking, already talked about the Spirit and the Lord, the Son. Now he says, one God and Father. He makes sure we understand there's a Trinitarian-ness to God. Of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. This uh, made me think during the study this week of one of my favorite references or quotes by our friend John Piper, who said in his book on preaching, he starts it like this. People are starving for the greatness of God. Most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives, however. The majesty of God is an unknown cure There are far more popular prescriptions on the market, but the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow. Preaching that does not have the aroma of God's greatness may entertain for a season, but it will not touch the hidden cry of the soul. Show me thy glory. It is not the job of the Christian preacher to give people moral or psychological pep talks about how to get along in the world. When that is needed, someone else can do that. But most of our people have no one, no one in the world to tell them week in and week out about the supreme beauty and majesty of God, end quote. Let me just say that everyone who graces this pulpit in humility wants to do that. And and frankly, the only way we can do that is not be good preachers, but to tell you what God's word says. And his glory and his beauty and his majesty will just unfold verse after verse, paragraph after paragraph, page after page. But he's right. We, We need more of the greatness of God. This is a greatness of God moment in verse 6. It's the climax of his little seven-part doctrinal creed. The Holy Spirit is in verse 4. 
The Son, the Lord, is in verse 5, and now the Father here in verse 6. This is in line with Paul's emphasis on the Trinity in, in the book of Ephesians. He emphasizes the Trinity, all three members, in verses chapter 1, verses 4 to 14, in chapter 1, verse 17, in chapter 2, verse 18, in chapter 2, verse 22, in chapter 3, verses 4, to, 4 and 5. In 4 to 17, here in chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, and in chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. And don't be surprised if there is a future sermon which looks at Paul's view of the Trinity in the book of Ephesians. This is a creedal statement. It's a statement of orthodoxy, and it climaxes in the nature of God, who is the Father. Now, what we read here, listen to this. He's the Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. He's transcendent, he's pervasive, and he is imminent. This is theologically dense. However, I grew up, and I used to hear a lot of people say, all means all, and that's all, all means. But that's just not true biblically. I mean, just one verse can disprove that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can't sin through Christ who strengthens me. That's under the category of all. I can't play for the NBA as a part of all things I can do through Christ who strengthens me. So all is always contextually defined. And so it is here. Because he's not the father of all people who are rebels. To him he gave the, John 1, to him he gave the right to become children of God as other believers. So it's not all. All here means the church. Jews and Gentiles. When he says all, he's referencing Jews and Gentiles, all believers. Now that doesn't mean that God is not the sovereign over all he is. Psalm 115 tells us that. We're not denying that. That's just not what he's speaking of here. Yes, God rules over all. But this is not talking about pantheism, that he's in all. I mean, what does it mean that God is in all? I, <coughs> one of my favorite stories is, you know, my son... Um, my oldest son, Luke, was young, probably five or six. We were uh, maybe four or five, actually. We were, we were having some ice cream, and um, I had been going through uh, the children's Westminster Catechism with him and talking about God and his omniscience and omnipresence, and, and uh, I, I thought it was going okay. And then Luke says to me, uh, he's, we're eating this ice cream, he says, Dad, is, is God everywhere? And man, I'm like, pretty good dad. Said, so, yeah, Luke, God is everywhere. He says, Does God know everything? He does know everything. You know, Rick Holland, Martin Luther, I'm just seeing church history being written right here. He says, Does that? And he's not looking at me. I remember him distinctly. He's looking down and he's eating his ice cream. He's not looking at me. He's just having this conversation. He says, is, is God in this room? And I am beaming with pride. Yes, God is here. So encouraged that you think God is here. I'm your pastor and your dad. You, this is great. Then he said, Is God in the ice cream and am I eating him? 
To which I answered the same way I did every time I was in theological trouble with my sons. Go ask your mom. (laughs) Is that what it means that he's in all? No, no. He's in all church. Jews and Gentiles, red and yellow, black and white, tall and short, rich and poor. He is in all. So when you look at those alls, those are very meaningful. He's the father of Jews and Gentiles. He's the father of each one of us. He's over all. He's the Lord of all of us. He's our master, our common identity, our common savior, our common Lord. He's through all. He works through his body, the church, and he is in all. He's permanently abides with all of us. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him. He goes on. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. All is used four times. Nothing takes place in the universe for sure, but nothing should take place in the church apart from and in isolation from him. Jews and Gentiles, all of us together. Harold Honer says this, quote, The present context is talking about the unity of all believers as modeled by the Father of all believers. Furthermore, the next words of the verse would argue against the idea of a universal Father of all human beings, since He is not only over all, but through all and in all. The New Testament never envisions that God is in every human being but he resides only in believing believers, Romans 8, 9 says. I, I agree with him on that. Romans eleven thirty six 36, very similar. From him, for him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's talking about the aspiration of a, of a child of God to have everything be glorifying to him. Look, to him are not all things in our world right now, right? We are living in a sin-cursed world, but one day that will be righted. So, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father. Seven doctrinal commitments that preserve unity in the church because if people are focusing on these common doctrinal commitments, our petty disagreements will be just that. They'll be petty. These are markers of any true believer in any true church. They're the criteria to evaluate our own faith, the criteria to evaluate a church. High school seniors, keep this list. When you are away at college and you start looking for a church, do they believe in these statements that Paul gave? Common commitment to theology and doctrine. Again, the first step is our attitudes, verses 1 to 3. And then our beliefs in verses 4 to 6. Doctrine matters. Doctrine matters a lot. It's not just for theologians and pastors and elders. It's for you're all a theologian. A good one or a bad one. An accurate one or an inaccurate one. A precise or an imprecise. And one of your goals is to be a better theologian. The better theologian you are, the better doctor of your own soul you can be the better you can self-assess and self-correct, the better you can counsel yourself. 
as Dr. Lloyd-Jones tells us, we should all be doing daily. In the middle of baseball season, there's a better part of a week that happens. It's a break. We call it the all-star break. It's one of my favorite times of the year. You have the National League and the American League. If, If you don't follow baseball, just trust me here for a minute. Two different leagues. And the, they choose their all-stars, the best of their divisions and their, their league, and they're all on one team and they play each other. What's interesting to me about the all-star game every year are the uniforms. They usually have their own shoes, but their socks are the same, pants are the same, jersey are the same, sleeves are the same, but their hats aren't the same. They all say on their jersey, National League or American League. But when you look at their hats, all-stars from the Yankees wear a Yankees hat. All-star from the Royals wear a KC hat. All-star from the Tigers wear a Tigers hat. The Braves a Braves hat, and on and on and on. They wear their own hat. That's kind of an interesting illustration of the church. We are all a little different with different backgrounds. But on that day of the All-Star game, the National League rivals and the American League rivals that hate each other during the year, on that day, those All-Stars are all on the same team, pulling the same direction, trying to win the same game, giving each other the high fives. And it's kind of a neat thing to watch. The problem is next week they're going to be at each other's throats. Good illustration, but not a... Sufficient illustration because we, are, we have different hats, same jersey, but we are with each other forever. We're marching to Zion together. And we should be in sync and unified and care and following the same coach, the same Lord, the same master, the same father, the same God. Common allegiances to greater things override uncommon differences in lesser things. Let's be allegiant to the same Lord, the same gospel with the same identity and get to heaven alongside each other in tandem with each other, working together to be more holy and ready for that great day when our faith becomes sight. Can you pray? Father, disunity is so easy because we measure on minor petty differences, divisions, and yet you've given us a common bond in the unity of the Spirit in his bond of peace between us. Help us to preserve that by believing and majoring on the right doctrine, the right theology, to treasure the gospel, to treasure you, our Lord, with such passion that petty things are truly things that are petty. Father, if you've convicted some who are believers but yet to be baptized, give them the the reasoning biblically and the courage to overcome that disobedience and to seek to be baptized.
And if you've alerted the heart of anyone of their need for a Savior, their hell-bound direction, their desperate need to be saved by your grace, to be redirected toward heaven and not hell because of your Son and the gospel, don't, don't let them leave without talking to someone who can help their souls. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.